The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Welcome to the program. I was recently invited to the Yukon Territory in Canada, way up north, the land of the midnight sun where it doesn't set until just after midnight night and it truly doesn't get dark this time of year an amazing reality if you've never done it and i have not prior to july of 2016 i was a guest of the yukon government's department of economic development attending an event sponsored by the yukon mining alliance i am grateful to all for the opportunity to travel to the area while i was up there a very short time i caught gold fever interviewing the ceos of several companies my friend geologist mickey fault and brent bergeron of gold corp on their pending acquisition of yukon's kamenak resources later in the program i'll speak with colin ozonian of noblest health with a look at that healthcare innovator let's begin first with the yukon territory Brent Bergeron is the Executive Vice President of Corporate Affairs and Sustainability at Gold Corp. I met with Brent at the Yukon Mining Conference in Dawson City, Canada, and we discussed the company's acquisition of Kamenak Gold in addition to Gold Corp's strategy for acquisitions. Brent, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. One day I woke up and I read my email and a friend told me that Gold Corp had basically made an offer on Kamenak. I didn't see it coming. How did that happen? Well, I, I think for us, I mean, when we're, we're taking a look around the world for different types of assets, I mean, the attractiveness of an asset, especially with respect to its resources, is extremely important to us. But we're placing a lot of emphasis also in terms of where we actually make the investments these days. And political risk is, is something that is becoming more important around the world. And Canada is still a great place to be investing in mining. There's still a lot of very interesting projects here. And you have governments who, different territories or provinces that are trying to attract companies to come and take a look at their projects, take a look at the value that can be created there, and also take a look at how they're trying to do mining in a very responsible way, including communities, including First Nations, and setting up the rules in a way that people will have clarity in terms of how we get our projects done and how we move forward. And that's a very important part of what we look for when we look at projects and jurisdictions. So is it jurisdiction first and then let's find a project in a jurisdiction we like? It's a combination of both, I would say. We're always looking at different projects that are very interesting. We're, everybody's going after the large-scale projects that will fit right into our portfolio. But then the jurisdiction and the political risk and the social risk starts to become an important factor of the analysis that we do when we're looking at actually acquiring projects. So I'd say that if you were looking at these types of projects 10 years ago, it would be quite different in terms of the way that we actually analyze them today. And, and the role that I play in the company is to actually make sure from a political, social, environment, CSR level, that we have a green light in terms of how we want to 
manage and go forward with the project. So you were one of the first people out here representing the company when it was decided that you were going to actually take on this project, correct? Absolutely. I was part of the due diligence team that came out and went out to the site to take a look at the project and then actually come to downtown here to take a look at also what kind of infrastructure that there is, what are the communities that we would be dealing with, and looking at how partnerships can be established, relationships can be established in terms of making sure that this project will go forward. What was it about this particular project that attracted the company? Of course, the technical aspects of the projects. I mean, the resources are there. Kamenak team has done an excellent job in terms of de-risking the project the way it's defined today in their feasibility study. But they've also done an excellent job in terms of working with the different partners in the area, whether it's the First Nations, whether it's the Yukon government, and making sure that people really have the information about how they're trying to design the project, involve them in the process, answering a lot of the questions in terms of the technologies that are going to be used for this project. So when you take a look at the way that the team from Kamenak has actually developed this one, it makes it a lot easier for us to eliminate that as a very big risk for the project moving forward or something that we would have to take on. Speaking of moving forward, what are your intentions with regard to Kamenak, let's say within the next 12 to 18 months? Well, the first thing that we need to do right now is finish the transaction. Yesterday we had the shareholder vote and it was very positive for us and it was what we were expecting, so everything has gone according to plan there. The legal team will now take on the rest of the work in terms of closing the transaction legally. And in the meantime, what we're going to do is start our consultation process, our meetings in terms of building the relationships with the different First Nations in the area here because we feel that that's a really important integral part of the work that we need to be doing. We want to be able to partner with the First Nations in the area. We've done it in other places in Canada. This type of business model, this type of relationship has worked extremely well for us in the past and and that's something that we also want to establish here. So starting those conversations, looking at where we are in terms of the permitting process right now, we would love to move forward as quickly as possible with the permitting process process, but we want to make sure that all the different partners are comfortable with Gold Corp and then we can move on with it. Are you looking at other potential opportunities in the region? Absolutely. I mean, uh, the whole philosophy behind where we pick a project or we pick a region is to make it in terms of building a mining camp for our company. So we've already done a secondary transaction where we've uh, made a uh, an initial investment in independent gold. That was done, I believe, about two weeks ago. And we're actually moving forward in terms of looking at different types of properties in the area that can allow us to grow what we have with Kamenak. Well, clearly, this is a very positive note for the local community with regard to jobs, increasing the infrastructure, and ultimately helping the uh, government coffers with regard to local taxes. Now, is Ottawa and the local the provincial government here, are they going to make some potentially tax concessions to, even, to make it even easier for Gold Corp to do business here? We haven't gotten into those types of discussions with the local government, and I don't know if that's actually necessary at this point, simply because what we're looking for is how we can work together in partnership to move forward in terms of other types of infrastructure 
infrastructure that may be needed in the future. So we know that the territorial government is actually looking at some funding coming from the federal government with respect to infrastructure and roads. You know, we definitely support that type of activity by the government. And if we can have them as partners to develop some of the infrastructure that's going to be used by the coffee project, by Gold Corp, that would be great for us. How are you posturing yourself for the coming two or three years? What's your outlook? Is it green light? Is it game on? In terms of the entire industry, well, I think that we're looking at this right now as a possible upswing in terms of the price of gold. We've seen some pressure coming in those areas. We believe that we're a company, even though that there was a down cycle, that we're positioned extremely well in terms of that next cycle that may occur. Supply and demand is actually playing a lot, we believe, into the price of gold these days is uncertainty. But as more of those types of events uh, occur, we actually see the cycle increasing. Therefore, with the type of company that we are, with our clean balance sheet, with access to capital, with a strong technical team also that's been able to deliver on two large-scale mines in the last two years uh, in terms of building them. We think that we're actually very bullish on our, our projects and very bullish on the price of gold also. And there's still a window at these price levels for more opportunities for mergers and acquisitions. Absolutely. And I think we we always look at it in terms of how we can build a better portfolio, maximize the value within our portfolio. And with an upswing in the price of gold, this allows us to take a look at different types of possibilities for projects that we may want to actually bring into the staple of projects that we currently have. How has Goldcorp as a company become leaner and meaner during this last bear market? Well, I think that all of us have learned during the last bear market that we have to be doing things better, more efficiently, because those cycles happen very, very quickly. And when they do, we have the responsibility to our shareholders to ensure that we're doing this in a way that is increasing the value of our projects all the time. And we're looking at ways to actually do things more efficiently. And I, I think that we're still in the process of doing that, lowering our all-in all sustaining costs, looking at our model in terms of how we work directly with the mine sites. And I think that our company is well positioned to be able to do that. You've taken a look at the Yukon and Kamenak specifically with a look at economic considering your background, correct? Yeah, that's right. Well, also in terms of political risk, and that's what we were were talking about before, whereby because I do the analysis of the jurisdictions where we operate and jurisdictions where we want to go, that's becoming a factor that is a lot more important in our decision-making process to really try and understand what would be the impediments of actually going to a different jurisdictions. And some of them are quite challenging. I mean, we have mines in Guatemala. We have mines in Argentina. They're quite challenging politically. All areas which you have a background in. Exactly. What is really interesting, and I was telling the Premier, and we've had this discussion before, is that they've been doing a strong effort to get to the forums, like the Prospectors Development Association of Canada Conference in Toronto, whereby every year they come and meet with me and try and attract my attention to why don't you come up here and take a look at what's going on in the Yukon? You're going to be interested. And, you know, three, four years of that really piqued our interest. So we started looking at projects in the area. When you have a government that is actually trying to attract companies to come and take a look, and they're doing it in a way that they want companies to come up and work here, but they want companies to work here responsibly also to really understand the terrain, to really understand the dynamics, the social, the economic, and the technical dynamics, 
and they knew that we had quite a bit of experience working in northern Ontario and also northern Quebec and some very good success in terms of our relationship with First Nations in those areas. So it was sort of a, a natural stepping stone for us to come out to the Yukon. Now, we know that Quebec is a, is a great jurisdiction. How would you compare the Yukon with Quebec? And if you could give any advice, I don't know if we should or not, but if you could give any advice to uh, the Yukon government, what would that be? I think that that whole relationship that exists in Quebec in between the provincial government, the First Nations in the area, is, is something that the government takes very seriously. It's something that the First Nations take very seriously in terms of telling people that you know they are open to commercial extractive operations in their province, on their traditional territories, but they want to ensure that it's done in a way that is socially and technically responsible. If you set those parameters from the start, I think it's extremely important that you have two partners that are working together to attract that industry, support it, and making sure that companies are adhering to the rules that and the regulations that they have in that area. And you fought much harder battles in Latin America, haven't you? Yeah, the, the political battles in Latin America are much more difficult, of course, and they're much more interesting. I find them to be quite interesting sometimes, but you can also learn quite a bit about you know the way that mining, extractive industry is done here in Canada, and export a lot of that experience to some of these countries in terms of demonstrating that you know when you do have regulations and standards that are are very responsible on behalf of the government and for companies when you have clarity in the process in terms of how foreign investment is welcome but is also protected in those countries those are all aspects that become extremely important in terms of us making sure that these countries do understand that if they want to attract foreign investment that this is a good model for them to put in place. Now, I live in a traditionally unfriendly jurisdiction. That's California. Yeah. What can you say hypothetically to the powers that be in the state of California to ease their minds with responsibility because it's a mineral-rich area, the entire state? How can we turn that around and benefit the population? I think that a lot of the basic regulations that have been put in place in California right now with respect to water, with respect to mining, reclamation, I think have extended to the point where they've made that jurisdiction unattractive to mining industry. What I would say, though, is that I think the extractive industry is doing mining in a very responsible manner today. And I, I would also say that if we take a look at how the industry has moved forward in the area of responsibility, I think it's probably getting closer to where California would like to see the industry in their their own state. And maybe there's a convergent point in between where they could bring back mining to the area where it can coexist with other industries and also be able to be an economic driver in the area. If that happened, hypothetically, would Gold Corp potentially be interested in getting into California? We're always looking at projects in different places, and we keep our eyes on specific projects, and some of them are actually in California. We take a long-range view in terms of making sure that we're following them along, and, and if there is, at one point, an area of compromise in terms of where we want to go with mining in different jurisdictions, while it's always attractive for us to know which good projects are there and how we can move forward quickly, similar to what we did here in the Yukon. 
Do you get involved in the education process in a local area and also with regard to a provincial area nationally? Do you, do you say, hey, look, basically there's ways we can get around this to, to make it work for you, to make you happy, to satisfy all of your concerns? Yeah, we do. We do it through different venues. We do it through the mining associations in different areas. We do it through the International Council on Metal and Mining to really try and demonstrate that there is ways of doing responsible mining around the world. And I think those are important organizations whereby we can talk about the experience of what we've done in in certain places. I mean, there are a lot of great mining companies out there that are doing extremely good work. And, you know, case in point is, is what Kamenak was able to achieve, you know, until we purchased this project. What they've been able to achieve in the Yukon, working with the different stakeholders, is a different way of actually pushing a project forward as opposed to only concentrating on explorations. There are much more facets to it, and I think that that model can be replicated in different places and can be discussed so that other jurisdictions may think that, you know, maybe that's the way that we want to be able to do mining in our area if we feel that mining can be an important economic driver. Brent Bergeron, thank you so much for joining us today on the program. Really appreciate your time. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. I've been chatting with Brent Bergeron, Executive Vice President for Corporate Affairs and Sustainability at Goldcorp at the Yukon Mining Conference in Dawson City, Canada. Listen to this segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com, and download the entire Ellismart Report on iTunes and TuneIn Radio. High-quality but undervalued mining stocks are finally starting to attract the attention of investors. Get the latest news and resource stock investment opportunities with a subscription to Resource World magazine. Published six times a year, Resource World features in-depth articles on mineral area plays, commodities of interest, and valuable investment insights by highly qualified market analysts, geologists, and mining journalists. Go to resourceworld.com to find out more. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with John McConnell, President and CEO of Victoria Gold Corp. Trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol VIT, Victoria Gold is a leading gold exploration and development company. The company's Eagle Gold Project in Yukon, Canada hosts a 43-101 compliant reserve of 2.3 million ounces of gold. The Eagle Gold Project is shovel-ready and when in production will produce 200,000 plus ounces of gold annually at an operation cost of approximately $600 per ounce. I sat down with Mr. McConnell at the recent Yukon Mining Conference in Dawson City, Canada. Resource World Magazine's Editor-in-Chief, Kathy Moore, joined me in the interview. John McConnell, welcome to the program. Ah, good morning. We're in Dawson City today. It's a wonderful day. The weather is incredible. Tell us about your company. Victoria Gold, focused on our Eagle Gold project in Canada's Yukon Territory. A couple things distinguish us from many venture-listed companies. Number one, we have a very healthy treasury with over $40 million in cash. Number two, we have a large asset in the Yukon, which is fully permitted. Fully permitted. So that means you're ready to go. (laughs) We're ready to go. What are your plans for the next year? Right now, we're focused on some exploration on a satellite deposit to Eagle. We just finished a 12,000-meter drill program. Results are slowly coming out. And we're focused on updating our feasibility study. And the feasibility study will come out in the fall. Certainly, a lot of things have changed since we did the previous feasibility study in 2012. You know, gold prices have changed. Exchange rates have changed. Fuel prices are down. Labor prices are down. Cement, cyanide are all down. So we think we'll produce a very 
robust feasibility study that's going to turn a lot of heads. You will be going into production clearly at some point since you are permitted everywhere. Yeah, no, we're ready to go. Just a small matter of raising $400 million to finance the construction. Our plan there is once we have this updated feasibility study out, assuming markets are good and price of gold is still up, we'll probably put in place a couple hundred million in debt in the fall and hopefully raise $200 million in equity to finance the development. We'll get started on construction in February of 2017. Construction time frame is about 18 months. So we'll be in full production by the end of 2018. We have no idea what the price of gold is going to be in 2019, but it's certainly at a good point right now where you can work. That's correct. You know, our cash cost is just over $600 per ounce. So very large margin, even at $1,200 gold. Give me some background on the management team, if you don't mind. I'm the CEO. I've been CEO since 2010. Prior to that, I was a director of the company. I'm a mining engineer. Spent more than 30 years now in Canada's north. Ran the Nana Civic Mine in Nunavut on the north tip of Baffin Island for a number of years. Switched to the diamond business in the late 90s and built the Snap Lake Diamond Mine for De Beers. And now I'm in the Yukon with Victoria Gold. You know, we're all very, very excited about gold, but on the way up here from Los Angeles, I was speaking with an engineer on his way to this area, and we were talking about diamonds. And I know it was a very hot topic in the late 90s and the early 2000s. I was involved with the company back then, Mountain Province, I think was the name of the company. It still exists. It still exists. The question was, if you don't mind me asking, we're a bit off topic, but since you're an expert in the area, any life left in uh, diamonds as far as, I don't mean the commodity itself, but the sector, if there is a sector for investment opportunity or is, is just a done deal and De Beers controls everything and, and that's it? No, I think, you know, De Beers probably controls 40 to 50% only these days. And there's, you know, still a lot of exploration for diamonds going on in Canada. You mentioned Mountain Province. They're just putting the final touches on the Gacho Kwe project in the Northwest Territories. It'll go into production later this year. It's a partnership between Mountain Province and De Beers. So, yeah, there's a great little company called Locara that has a mine in Africa that's doing very well. So there's still a lot of excitement around the diamond sector. Still very quiet as far as the retail investment public is concerned. Yeah, I think, you know, diamond prices, like other metal prices, have been down for the last number of years. But there's been a few companies quietly still going about exploration. So what gets you up and excited every day with regard to Victoria Gold? You know, I love it here in the Yukon. This is the first time I've had a project that I can drive to. I actually made the decision five years ago to move to the Yukon. I felt, you know, in terms of permitting, we needed a a senior person in the territory, and it's made a huge difference. You know, the premier, who most people probably meet once a year at an event like this, is a friend of mine now because I live in the territory. So what gets me excited is uh, we have a great project. I work with a great team of people, and I just love the mining business. I grew up in a mining town. I come by my profession naturally, I guess you could say. I do get excited to get up every morning and go to work. My wife says I work way too much. Your time could be spent doing other things not as lucrative and fun, though, I imagine. Well, you know, the mining business hasn't been that lucrative the last few years with markets the way they've been, the way that, you know, a lower gold price and lower copper prices, but it's still fun. Where do you see the company in five years? Oh, I'd love to see the company in five years with a market cap of, five billion and running three mines, two other gold mines somewhere uh, in the world. Entirely possible, correct? 
It is. Are you determined to be the minor producer? You know, my first experience running a junior company was a company called Western Celtic. I thought we would be building a copper mine in uh, northwestern BC, but along came Sherwood Copper and made our shareholders an offer they couldn't refuse, so uh, I moved on. And that could very well happen in this case, but the nice thing about Victoria is we do have the people and the knowledge to build the mine and operate it. And certainly that'd be our preference, but as I say, sometimes you don't get that choice. You know, in terms of shareholder value, we can add more value by building it than selling it, particularly at this point. You have to be bullish about gold if you're in this business. You have to be bullish about mining to be in the junior sector. If I just wanted to go to work every day, I'd still be working for De Beers. Well, John, it's a real pleasure to meet you and speak with you today. Thanks for joining me on the program. Thank you. It's been great. Have fun in Dawson. I've been speaking with John McConnell, President and CEO of Victoria Gold, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol VIT. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. News, information, opinion, and commentary all found here. EllisMartinReport.com I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Graham Downs, the president of ATAC Resources, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange's ATC. ATAC Resources is developing Canada's only Carlin-type gold district at its Rackla Gold Project in safe and mining-friendly Yukon. The Rackla Gold Project is wholly owned by ATAC with no underlying royalties and covers 1,700 square kilometers hosting two distinct trends. Resource World Magazine's Editor-in-Chief Kathy Moore joins me in this interview. Graham Downs, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Tell us about ATAC Resources and the Yukon. Well, ATAC Resources has been around for about 15 years, and we have Canada's only Carlin trend, and we've been exploring the Rack the Gold project for about the last seven, eight years now. Now, feel free to elaborate exactly to our American audience and, and those around the world what a Carlin-type trend is. Absolutely. Most of your listeners will recognize Nevada as hosting the majority of the Carlin-type deposits on the planet, and the U.S. is the fourth largest global gold producer, and uh, the majority of the gold that comes out of the U.S. comes from Nevada, and these Carlin and type deposits, which simply form in clusters, and it's just a way that the gold mineralization was deposited, and they form in clusters. They can be small, high grade, and very large and low grade, so uh, very uh, big producers of gold. So where does your company stand with regard to production? We're an exploration stage company, and we're a few years off from production, that's for sure, but we've definitely tagged a lot of zones on our project. Our goal, and what our job is to do, is to demonstrate that we have that critical mass and prove up the ounces. We're definitely on a good start. But you've targeted quite a few zones from my knowledge and what's the next step within the next year in this possible return to a gold boom? We don't know for sure yet but it feels like it. I believe that as well. I think we might be coming out of a bad cycle. We were very fortunate. We've been cashed up through the cycle. We haven't taken any dilution for our stock or very little. We've made new discoveries year after year even in the downturn. So our goal and our plan moving forward is to keep advancing these zones. We're very fortunate. Late last year we made a brand new discovery of 47 meters of just about four grams at a new zone called Orion. We are drilling that right now in phase one and we plan to get a phase two program for that one as well. So that's our immediate plan for drilling but we have a number of other targets that we're advancing as well. Orion is at the uh, eastern end of our project. We also have a western end of our project and that's the raw trend and we have a brand new 10 square kilometer gold anomaly that we found late last year as well. So we have uh, a number of things going on on, on multiple fronts on this project. 
Well, the obvious question is, are you going to be a project generator or your own project generator? <laughs> Good question. I mean, we have a very large project and we have found a lot of gold and we're early on in the exploration. Um, we will just move along on our own project. We have that optionality. We could option out an entire part of our project to a major gold company and let them spend some dollars on advancing those if we wanted to. But the thing is, is we just keep finding gold year after year after year and making new discoveries. So we're comfortable doing it on our own right now. But down the road, let's hypothetically say a company like Goldcorp, who happens to be in the, in the Yukon, of course, takes a liking to your company, one of your projects. There's no reason why, again, you couldn't just option off a property and still keep the rest for yourself and or other players down the road. Definitely. And, and with approximately, I guess it would probably be about 1,200 square miles of a project with targets all throughout it. I mean, our project is the length of Long Island. We can do a lot of different things because our project is completely unencumbered. There's no royalties. We don't have any holding costs. There's no royalties uh, again, so we can do just about anything with the project. That sounds very exciting. Kathy, do you have any questions? Yeah, I was reading about the tote road that you said that you had to do some work on. How long is that? Yeah, good question. So that's a very important part of you know what we're doing this year. Is right now we have you know we're not accessed by roads. So what we're doing now is we put in an application for a 70-kilometer tote road to the western end of the project, and we hope that will be successful and maybe have a permit to build that road by the beginning of first quarter of 2017 would be ideal. So. You know, then if we can get that permit, we can demonstrate that we can get access to the project. And that would actually uh, be approximately about $11 million. So not a, a big, big price tag for a 70-kilometer tote road. So, Is there any chance you're going to get some of the funding for the road? Because I know the government's funding some roads. What the government can do is they can maybe help us out with the first part of the road, which is already existing. They can put money into existing roads to improve them. What else is the government doing to help you, the Yukon government? Well, the Yukon government is just supports mineral exploration in the Yukon. They listen to us. We have a great relationship with them. They help out in any way possible, just like you know, helping us out with that road, potentially. They help out from the Yukon Geological Survey. They come out and they bring their teams out. When we made our discovery, they brought out a team and helped us map a large part of our project because at the beginning of the project it was just one undifferentiated map sheet of limestone. <laughs> so the Yukon government said, well, this is what we can do is come in and help everyone understand. The Tell us about your background if you don't mind. I started up here in the Yukon in 1994 working for a geological consulting firm called Archer Cathra who we still use. So this will be my 22nd year working in the Yukon. Most of it, well all of it's been in the Yukon and in the 2000-ish late 90s I went back to school for business geographical information systems, came back and did some IR for one of the companies and became CEO of Attack in 2007. And at that time, we were a project generator. And then a couple years later, we uh, tagged Canada's only Carlin trend, and it was a wild ride from there. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's been an, an amazing experience working in the Yukon, and it's just probably the best place in the world to find mineralization. So. And if you don't mind, some information on your share structure. You bet. So we're about 122 million shares outstanding, roughly 130 uh, fully diluted. Uh, there's no warrants, and uh, we have about 17.5 million uh, in the till right now. Any debt? No debt. Well, Graham, it's been a great pleasure to speak with you today. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Thanks so much for having me. I've been speaking with Graham Downs, President and CEO of ATAC Resources, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol ATC. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com, or download the entire Ellismart Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio.
We asked it before you consider any possible investment choice. Do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Tara Christie, director of Banyan Gold. Banyan Gold trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol BYN. Banyan has successfully acquired the Highland Gold Project in the Yukon Territory at a cost of approximately $1 per ounce of gold, with an initial near-surface 43101 compliant resource estimate of 361,692 ounces of gold. I recently sat down with Ms. Christie at the Yukon Mining Conference. Resource World Magazine's Editor-in-Chief, Kathy Moore, joins me for this interview. Tara, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Tell us about your company. Banyan Gold has the Highland Project in southeast Yukon. We have an initial 400-ounce gold resource on the property. We are an early-stage company. We are just about to embark on an exploration program for 2016. The area in southeast Yukon is the Selwyn Basin. Our property, we have a 16-kilometer structural trend where we've identified mineralization. That initial resource is, is in an area that we call the main zone. And then we have areas of interest where we've identified other anomalies in soils that extend over that 16 kilometers. What do you expect to find, hypothetically speaking? We hope that we're looking at a multi-million ounce gold district. That's what this type of deposit and this type of area, the hope is really to take that initial resource, expand it, and show others that it has high potential. So there's a possibility down the road, and I'm using the word possibility, yeah. and I'm also using the word potential, right. that you envision that you may have a 2 to $5 billion company down the road. Well, that's what every junior explorer hopes to get to. I can't say that at this stage. <laughs> this is early stage, so that's what the dream is, and that's what our exploration, because of you know market conditions right now. We have this initial resource, which is all in the main zone, the 400,000 ounces. Really, what we've been doing is trying to expand what's known about the property to show others that there is that type of potential. Many projects with just a resource, people often just think that, well, that's all there is, is, you know, you've drilled off this one resource, and that's not at all. This property is tremendously underexplored. We plan to get in there and do some rab drilling to expand, and then we, we actually do have a drill and an excavator on site, so we can do some step-out drilling from the main zone and infill drilling, but... In this market, it's been very hard to raise money. It's getting easier. So our plan for this year was about a $300,000 exploration program, which doesn't go that far with drilling. Well, we were going to do RAB drilling. So, you know, that's maybe 1,500 meters. We're lucky we have the equipment on site and then some trenching and soil sampling. So eventually we'd like to do a $3 million program, which might be next year, to actually increase the resource at the main zone, as well as drill some of these other prospects. Are you looking at known zones or are you doing new targets in this or are you sticking to beefing up your numbers for the known deposit? We are going to do a little bit of both. Primarily though we want to do a bit of work on these new zones so that we can show that broader potential so that it's a mineralized belt. We're quite lucky because we have Rob Karn on our advisory board who's from Attack, and he's currently working on a, a revised technical report for us. He's quite excited about the property. He was one of the first people on the property and he's been working in the Yukon for 40 years and he sees lots of parallels between what they're seeing at a 
attack and the Nataline trend. So that's what's quite exciting. Is your ground a similar to that? When you go there and look at the ground, it's, it's very accessible? Yes, he is seeing parallels in the style of mineralization, both the Carlin style mineralization. Yeah. That's One final question. Yeah. Uh, tell us about the share structure. We have a very tight share structure and it's primarily, we have a good insider participation. Insiders are currently 33%. Fully diluted, we have 39.6 million shares outstanding. We have some 9 million warrants outstanding. Victoria Gold is also one of our major shareholders with 8%. Pretty tightly held stock. Tara, it's been a real pleasure to meet with you today. Thanks so much for joining us on the program. Thank you very much. I've been speaking with Tara Christie. Director of Banyan Gold. Banyan Gold trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol BYN. Listen to the segment again on our website, ellismartreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with a mercenary geologist, Mickey Fulp. I visited with Mickey while we were both attending the Yukon Mining Conference in Dawson City, Canada. Mickey, welcome to the program. It's always good to see you wherever we're at together in the world. Quite a surprise to see you here in Dawson City, I must admit, Ellis. I have a hankering for old casino ghost towns. Well, there's a casino here for sure. I don't know if it's ghost towns, tourist town now, but pretty impressive uh, dredge piles from all the plastering as you flew in here. I don't know if you noticed. We're on a tour and we got a little flyby coming in on a small fixed-wing aircraft, so... So why are we both here right now? What's your best guess? It's just exciting to be in the Yukon. The Yukon Mining Alliance, the Yukon government are very proactive, or is, is this where it's happening right now? Well, there's always something happening in the Yukon and has been for quite some time in terms of gold deposits. Very richly endowed province. And with the rise in gold, you know, and Gold Corp taking out Kamenak here, that was completed yesterday, I think, the vote. So there's been a bit of a, a buzz in the industry, and it just so happens to coincide with the annual Yukon Mining Alliance One Day show here. I'm part of a newsletter media tour, and we're looking at eight different projects in four days. Now, with Gobacorp coming in like they did with Kamenak, do you expect other majors like Agnico Eagle and uh, uh, Barrick to, to make a similar play down the road? Is this area going to heat up? Well, that was one specific deposit. So Kamenak shareholders were rewarded. We'll see what Goldcorp does with it. I personally would seriously doubt that that is going to be on top of their development list, if you will. I think they'll probably park it. It's got reserves. Just that's a like, half a billion dollar parking ticket right there. That's all. It's equity. There wasn't a dollar changed hands. It's all equity. So, yeah. But they did the same thing with Probe Mines back in, uh, what, January, February? So... You know, they're accumulating reserves. That's what Gold Corp has historically been rewarded for in the market. Its valuation in terms of market cap per ounce of produced is much higher than any other major gold mining company. So they get valued on their reserves and resources, and they've just added new reserves and resources to the kitty. Now, you've toured eight companies. 
you can mention names if you want to or you don't have to. Uh, folks can read your newsletter. Folks can subscribe to the Mercenary Geologist. But in your opinion, will there be other potential acquisitions down the road? What's the game plan for these companies now? Well, it's, you know, every company is going to have a different exit strategy or multiple exit strategies, you hope. We've looked now at four companies or five, and we've got three or four to go. So I can't speak for all of them, but, you know, there's significant gold deposits here, precious metal deposits there. As with most of the gold projects in the world, they need a higher gold price. These projects in the Yukon, in my honest opinion, are marginally economic to sub-economic at this price of gold. So I think that most analysts, myself included, are bullish on the price of gold. I don't think you're going to see a lot of merger and acquisition activity. It's going to be spotty for a while in this environment. I think there are some first movers that are trying to position themselves with good deposits. That said, we don't have enough good deposits in the world for the demand that's coming. So that means that that prices have to go up to meet demand at some point. So these are exciting times again. Yeah, well, a lot more exciting than it was in January in Vancouver. I think we talked then. There was a bit of a buzz starting in March at PDAC. But this business is, it looks like, out of the bear market emerging from the bear market and we've got a incipient bull market forming and those are usually led by gold by the price of gold so that's what we've seen gold has gone up significantly what is it trying to do the math in my head something uh, on the order of 30 percent this year that's a pretty good return and silver's done very, very well itself, as a matter of fact. Well, silver's lagged behind, as it usually does in incipient mark, bull markets like this. But I think silver probably has a lot further to go in terms of percent rise than gold, because if you look, I mean, we were historic highs, near historic highs for the gold-silver ratio just a couple of months ago. Got up to 83. Uh, you know, if you look at in since... 1971, something around about 2% of the time is the ratio above 80. So that becomes a buying opportunity for silver, buy signal for silver over gold. Right now, the I haven't looked the last couple of days. On Friday, the gold-silver ratio was 68. But it, it'll end up back into a more normal range of 55 or 60, somewhere in that range. At some point in the future, at which time silver will be valued normally with respect to gold. Are you an investor in any of these companies here at the Yukon? I don't hold a single company in the Yukon at this stage. But that's one of the reasons I'm here. I'm looking. Fair enough. So you are interested, but as of this broadcast, it hasn't happened yet. No. I've been on the road now for nearly a week. I haven't paid much attention to the stock market. We've been pretty busy. Lots of uh, planes, helicopters, and automobiles. I've never been to Dawson City before, but I've certainly been in the Yukon looking at projects uh, a number of times in the past. At what point are you going to become more comfortable in a merger and acquisition society? Well, 
what we've seen is all share transactions. And I'm waiting before I'll declare this a, a real bull market. I want to see merger and acquisition activity that involves good old American dollars changing hands and not just, not just increasing the equity and in the, the company to pay for an acquisition. And also maybe a competitive bid. You know, every one of these things there has yet to be on any of these mergers that we've seen or acquisitions we've seen over the last, say, year, year and a half. None of them have a competitive bid or hostile bid come in or the raising of a bid. So when that starts to happen, bull market's on. So we're not seeing the same kind of excitement we might see, let's say, in the Vancouver real estate market. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, that no doubt is a bubble that will burst at some point. All bubbles burst. That's All right. why they're called bubbles. Mickey, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. Thanks a lot, Ellis. My pleasure. I've been chatting with Mickey Fulp of MercenaryGeologist.com. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com, or download the entire Ellis Martin Report on iTunes or TuneIn Radio. I hope you've enjoyed this series of interviews and have found them enlightening. Again, I'd like to thank the Yukon government's Department of Economic Development and the Yukon Mining Alliance, as well as Yukon First Nations, for their hospitality. I'm Ellis Martin. Did you hear something worth repeating? Find all segments of this program on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with the Vice President of Corporate Development for Nobilis Health Corporation, Colin Azonian. Nobilis trades in the U.S. as HLTH and on the TSX as NHC. Nobilis is a recognized healthcare leader and marketing innovator that develops, owns, and partners with ambulatory surgery centers, hospitals, and physician practices to provide high-yield procedures in the rapidly expanding, minimally invasive elective surgery market. Mr. Azonian is responsible for the oversight of all mergers, acquisitions, joint ventures, and investor relations. Colin, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. For listeners old and new, catch us up on Nobilis. What have you been doing over the last year that is very, very exciting? Well, we've built a tremendous foundation over the last year or so, and it's primarily been focused on our ability to provide tremendous operational excellence to each one of our facilities, which are located in the Houston, Dallas, and Phoenix markets. We have been primarily focused on continuing our organic growth, which has just been tremendous, specifically driven through our ability to provide world-class marketing and sales efforts, which help our physicians and our physician partners do a tremendously high-quality level of care within our facilities. So that really has been our core focus in continuing to grow organically and from an operational standpoint. In parallel, we continue to see tremendous opportunity in the merger and acquisition world. And we've ventured into the surgical hospital space, which provide us the ability to do much more complex surgical procedures that align nicely with what we're doing on the marketing side in terms of creating a multi-specialty branded portfolio. And Closing those surgical hospitals last year have just added incredible opportunity in terms of how we've been able to grow. So growth has been the key element, that's for sure. Not every public or private company focuses on marketing to the degree that Nobilis does. Marketing is definitely related to your bottom line, is it not? 
Absolutely. It's a unique business model that truly none of our peers or public competitors out there not only have, but are able to replicate. This is something that's been built over the years. It's very sophisticated. There's a lot of proprietary technology and processes that go into executing you know, our marketing capabilities. And you see that at the bottom line. So essentially, in addition to growing your own business, you're growing those of surgeons and physicians that you're attracting to Nobilis, correct? That's correct. So we not only capture patients through our direct-to-consumer national ad campaigns, but we also work with independent physicians and their practices to help truly grow their business and manage it from that point forward. And you're doing that, I assume, with the surgical hospitals that you're acquiring as well. That's correct. So our surgical hospitals, in essence, give us the ability to, as I mentioned before, do those much more complex type surgeries. You have 72 hours of inpatient time, if you will. Those surgical hospitals are effectively big opportunities for us to provide a wonderful center of care for those patients that we do acquire through our marketing efforts. Tell us about the boutique surgical outpatient centers that you have based in Houston, Dallas, and Phoenix. Right. So each one of these centers truly is a luxurious environment. It's a world-class environment where I almost relate them to a small boutique hotel or country club. You know, some of them with valet parking, the cafeterias, the doctor's lounges, most importantly, the patient rooms, wood flooring throughout. And these are high quality luxury spaces so that our patients come in the door and they truly feel like they're in a place where they're going to get excellent care and enjoy the environment that they're going to be in, albeit it's a short turnaround time, whether 24 hours in the uh, ASC space or up to 72 in the surgical hospitals. But it truly provides a unique and wonderful environment for these folks. And on the flip side, for the doctors, right? These surgeons who have been going to the hospitals and park in parking garages and constantly see a different quality of staff members that are working with them in these ORs, this provides them with a wonderful place to work. So we really put a lot of focus and effort in terms of managing these facilities. Okay, now that sounds expensive. Explain to our audience how that's simply not the case. It's not expensive. And it's great for the physicians, insurance companies, and patients as well. Absolutely. And and it comes down to size and your ability to manage them effectively. They're efficiently built so that they are not built with a lot of overhead and, and they're built to do one thing and that's surgery. So from the moment you walk in that door to the moment you leave, every single space that you're in and the clinical workflow that, that occurs in this facility is built on an efficiency model. So you may have nice luxury type of amenities in terms of actually the production, if you will, it's efficient and it's cost effective. So as you mentioned, the payers and the insurance companies love this model because you're providing a higher quality of care, a more efficient level of care, and you're doing it in a setting that reduces the overall cost of these individual procedures. I'm sure you have a great deal of positive word of mouth testimonials, but that itself is not really enough to grow a business. When most folks have an injury or pain that requires care and they don't have a solution in mind immediately, they may surf the internet willy-nilly attempting to find that solution, and therein the risk may be lurking and unreliable. As you've mentioned, your marketing campaign is fairly extensive and designed to capture these inquiries. It is a unique model in terms of the talent, people, and resources and how well they're trained and the backgrounds that these individuals have in terms of working with potential new patients. And that process starts from the very beginning. They may be, as you said, willy-nilly searching the internet or asking around their friends. But at that point, that's really where we capture these patients. Now, that's only the beginning, right? 
these patients then need to be educated. What really are they looking for? Is this something that one of the Nobilis brands can offer them? If it is something, you know, let's tell them a little bit more about why it's going to be important to them. Let's share the testimonials that other patients have received. Let's introduce them to the physician network that we have under the Nobilis system. Let's really show them our facilities and quality of care. And all of a sudden, it becomes much more than just a, well, this is what these guys do. We've created an experience for this individual that nobody else can offer. And once they understand that experience and start to engage with it, we then help them put together their medical history, the profile that's required that typically is very hard for a patient to do. Once we package that all together for them, we review it internally and we present them if necessary, if they meet all the requirements as a surgical candidate to one of our surgeons at one of our facilities. And at that point, it truly is up to the surgeon to determine whether they are a candidate for surgery. However, it's, it's that process, that level of education, and really cutting out all of that legwork that both the patient and the doctor have to do to get to the actual point of surgery. Nobilis handles all of that behind the scenes, and that's a big part of the process that you truly don't see on the front, but is definitely happening on the back end. We have listeners all over the U.S., and we've been discussing primarily the Houston, Dallas, and Phoenix area. I'm sure there are folks with conditions that would qualify for care at your facilities outside those cities, and they may be thinking of asking us, how about me? What can I do to acquire this kind of specialized treatment, comfort, and expediency, if you will? What would you say to them? That's a great question. And what we would tell you is there truly are two options. One, we have partnership facilities. We have 33 of them all over the country in a variety of different states. So we definitely have facilities that we have evaluated the quality of care that these guys provide and simply offer an additional treatment center for you. Now, we don't own or have equity in these facilities, but we've done all of the legwork to make sure that these facilities would be a facility that we would want with the Nobilis name and the Nobilis brand of procedures truly on the front door. So we do offer that and we also do have patients who given the level of quality of care and the top notch level of care that we provide, they are willing to get on airplanes. We have a lot of customers who may be up in Minneapolis, Minnesota in the middle of December, right, who fly down to our Scottsdale facility and spend the week down there to get a procedure done. So it gives them a little vacation time and, and they get a little surgery along with it. Interestingly enough, we do have quite a bit of patients that are willing to get on airplanes and schedule these quick, easy-to-recover surgical procedures at our facilities in Texas and Arizona, especially uh, in the wintertime. What a concept, one I've never thought of. Let's talk about the revenue stream. You've been a profitable corporation. Let's talk about how Nobilis revenues may have grown during the last year. Absolutely. So straight up, yes, absolutely, we're still profitable and growing our profits. I think if we look at our average revenue per case and how that's gone up, I mean, that's a really good indicator of what Nobilis is trying to achieve, which is maintain a diversified portfolio of procedures, but continue to grow into spaces that drive that revenue up and continue to drive our margins up as well. Our complex spine procedures, the spine world is continues to be a big part of our business. The orthopedic brand, Onward Orthopedics, that we recently launched within the last year is an additional procedure type that we are including and in trying to grow and we're seeing great success there. The bariatric world as it relates to stomach procedures is another one. So we're heavily focused on growing through optimization of the type of procedures that we're able to brand and 
can provide in our facilities. I also would say, too, that a lot of our strategy and effort going forward, too, is the recent launch of Concertus, which is our bundled payment initiative. And that truly relates to the types of procedures that we're providing. So on the orthopedic side, if you look at total joints, those are procedures that we're going to continue to do, continue to market for, and continue to grow within our facility base. And you're going to start to see that those bundled payments or alternative payment models that we contract for will significantly be a contributing factor in continued growth and profitability. What do you see as a representative of Nobilis as a general reason for a listener to potentially consider the company as a possible investment opportunity? Straight off the bat, it's all about the business model. Like I said earlier, there is nobody who can do what we do or is doing what we're doing out there in an effective manner with the returns that they're getting. We are a unique model. We're disruptive. There's a heavy technology component to what we do. Tremendous amounts of IP that allow us to create a patient experience that no one else is able to replicate. And I think it's it's that business model that truly is your number one reason for investment. Two is our ability to execute in the fundamentals of this business. We now have built what I see as the foundation to grow into a national scaled business where we have a tremendous amount of facilities across the country and we're able to serve the entire U.S. base of patients who are looking for a better alternative than going to their local hospital. We provide a tremendous level and quality of care in that experience. And I think we're now at the point where you're going to see not just year-over-year growth, and we're going to continue to execute on that, but an appetite to truly serve the entire U.S. healthcare population. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. they paid us for the privilege. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, LSM martinreport.com Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.